Thank you, Nicole, as always, for leading us in prayer. When Nicole and I discussed prayer for this Sunday, um, which the theme for Sunday was God is our deliverer, and the passage that had originally been picked didn't feel wrong, every passage is wonderful, but it didn't feel quite right. And when we landed on this for the prayer because of talking about it being a deliverer, I'm sure we both in the back of our minds knew that it was Father's Day, but had not put together how beautiful it would be to pray the Lord's Prayer intentionally on Father's Day because sometimes things just fall together that way without us planning. Uh, It is Father's Day and That day can be difficult for some people because some of us do not have wonderful relationships with our fathers or have good memories with our fathers. Uh, There's all kinds of reasons that people may have turmoil on this day or sadness. So I would encourage all of us to rest safely and contentedly in the arms of the one father that we all share and that we can trust in all situations. I will say that from in the back of the church this morning, I loved watching some of the fathers with their children, one father holding a newborn, one helping his kids with their donuts and and crayons and artwork, and one dad with his daughter wrapped around his neck like she was never going to let go, and one dad back in the booth proudly watching his three sons play music together, the Miller Trio again. It's the last time they'll play together before the oldest heads off to the military academy, so that was kind of a sweet thing, but it is very beautiful to watch dads with their children, Um, and I know difficult for some people. So let's remember that our father is good, and that the fact that it says our father, it's all of us. It's all of us as one because we are a collective identity as God's children. Uh, It's also ones together in a community and we have a corporate identity our father he is our identity so let me pray this morning and then because this feels like such a natural segue we'll jump into job shall we let's pray lord thank you for being not just lord and king and almighty majestic creator of everything that exists but also <clears throat> the gracious, generous Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and also our Father. What an undeserved gift. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, My high school year, my junior year of high school, which was a very long time ago and is somewhat of a blur, though I do remember my world literature class taught by a woman who her, her last name started with T-R, and that's all I remember. I spent some time last night trying to remember what it was. Couldn't find my yearbook to look it up because that would have meant knowing where I'd put my yearbook. Um, and then I kept coming up with Tremaine, but that's because of Johnny Tremaine, which I noticed on the shelf in my office the other day. I don't remember her last name, but I remember she was very neat and tidy. Everything was paper clipped together and her grade book, everything was marked. And I thought, oh, to be like her, which I'm not. Uh, But we also read Job in that class. World literature, we read Job. And I thought, well, I am so going to ace this part of the class because, you know, I go to Sunday school and Awana and I love Jesus and Job, it's my stuff. Hardest paper I have ever written in my life. Because what do you do with the book of Job? Really, even if you love it as your scripture, what do you do with the book of Job? When I taught Bible as literature, which was 35 years after high school, when I taught Bible as literature at Purdue for several years, we read Job because it is a very important 
not only part of our scriptures, but it's a very important piece of literature from the ancient world. And I remember many students in my class, who the ones who happened to be familiar with scripture and the Lord, I could see in their eyes the same attitude that I had as a junior in high school. They're thinking, I got this book. I know the Lord. I went to Awana or whatever they went to. This is easy because Job is about suffering and this is going to be an easy unit. Um, only it wasn't. For them or for me, uh, I had done a lot of reading and learning about Job and discovered that it is much thicker and denser and deeper than simply Job is about suffering. Certainly Job suffers, but really in the end, that is not the point of the book. And it's a very narrow view of it. Today I'd like us to make, take a broader view of it. Uh, Job is wisdom literature which serves a very specific function in scripture. It uses poetry and parables and proverbs and speeches to primarily help us think about God, think about ourselves, and think about the world correctly. That is primarily what Job is about. Now, right now in the world, I think there might be a lot of people who may feel like, I am going through what Job went through. Right? It's been a crazy season for many of us uh, because of the health issues going on in the world. And there's almost always family issues that people are dealing with, personal issues, job issues. There are all kinds of things right now that maybe have heightened all of those to such a degree that it might be easy to go, I totally get what Job was going through. And I'm not talking about the comedy of errors kinds of things that sometimes happen, like we can't find a contractor for a bathroom and the world is going to implode because of this, which is how that can absolutely feel. I traveled home this week from spending time with two daughters-in-law, who we haven't had much time together because of the last year and a half, and the trip home was a comedy of errors, from flights being delayed by 12 hours. I'm sorry, that is not a delay. From, from Naomi at Alamo telling us there'd be no extra cost to deliver a car to a different airport than this one, which we all know isn't true because it's usually about 450 extra dollars to do that. And cars breaking down on the side of the road and flights being delayed because a flight attendant injured herself while deplaning the plane and all kinds of things. That's not what I'm talking about, though those make for very good stories, and in the moment, if you can laugh your way through them, that's great. But there's some things in life you cannot laugh your way through, and you ought not to. I'm talking about the real turmoil and unrest and discomfort and discontentment, uncontentment, lack of contentment. I don't know what the right word is right there, but I'm talking about those moments. And the question that I would have for us today is, do we go to Job for comfort in those moments? Is that why Job exists? So that when we are suffering or going through trials like Job did, we have a place to go to be comforted and to walk through it. And I would say that because scripture is thick and rich and so much more than we can imagine, of course we can find comfort in maybe the most unexpected places in scripture. In fact, even last week, Ara, who turns out Job is one of his favorite books in scripture, I cannot wait to hear him share with us his insight into it, but he mentioned that he and his wife have gone to Job and been comforted. I think that is a bonus and an extra God-given gift of Job because primarily, I don't think we go to Job to be provided with comfort. I think we go to Job to prepare for being in crisis in our life, which we all will be at some time or another. Those times when we need to really know the Lord 
and we need to have his wisdom. We go to Job, I would say, primarily to be set up to correctly be delivered from ourselves, as Nicole mentioned. Our own sense of control, our own sense of power, our own need to parse everything and figure out why, what, when, wherefore, our own sense of all-knowingness in a world which because of digital technology and information we tend to think that we do know everything and we can control many things and we are in charge of a lot when in fact we are not. I think we go to Job not primarily to get answers for our questions, which is what I wanted in my traveling comedy of errors. I mean, I did want solutions, but I also wanted to know why Naomi didn't give us the right information and why a plane would be 12 hours late and how someone injured themselves deboarding a plane. I wanted to know these things just sort of out of curiosity. But in the end, what I wanted were solutions. With Job, we don't primarily go to get answers for our questions about God. We go to reorient ourselves to right thinking about God, and in the end, when we read Job, we're gonna find out that what we get to our questions are not answers, but more questions. Questions that help us think rightly about who the Lord is. So Job is one of the books in scripture that is given very little context. It doesn't begin with, in the 10th year of the reign of Tiberius, the king of whoever, wherever. We're not given a historical time frame. Job is not a Hebrew. He's from a different land. And that's a hint about how we should read this. Job is not living in the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, with the Israelites, the Jews, that much of the Old Testament is written in. Many Old Testament scholars believe that Job, the book Job, is really written about a man at some point who was very well-to-do, enjoyed great wealth, and went through a very difficult time and then maybe had his wealth and his comfort restored at the end and then people trying to make sense of what happened with the Spirit's guidance and the Spirit's inspiration. None of us will ever know exactly all the background to Job until we're with the Lord, but I think it's good to know that there's many ways that people have tried to make sense of it. The book itself is written as a drama. It's got these two little bookends Here's something about how amazing Job's life was. At the end, you've got another bookend. I actually should probably do this the opposite way. Is this moving from left to right for you from here? At the beginning, this is what you have. Wait, is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> I'm left-handed. Everything is backwards for me. At the beginning and at the end, we're just going to do them both in the middle. At the end, he's again restored, right? Those are the two bookends. And in the middle, you have one heavenly scene where I'm just going to suggest that there wasn't a reporter up there with a tape recorder and a notepad recording everything that the Lord and the angelic heavenly host were saying, that there's some kind of inspiration going on. It's really a thought experiment in some ways. So we all know what happened to Job. What if this is how it happened and this is why it happened? And then you've got a lot of dialogues. It's a drama, like much ancient literature. Someone speaks for a long time, someone responds. This person responds back. A new person speaks, this person responds. There's a lament in the middle, and then there's another conversation, and then the final big speech by the Lord, and then the final bookend. It is a beautiful drama featuring people with strange names. 
Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, or Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, depending on which language and which rhythm you want to speak them with. At the end, Elohu. And then God's response and then the closing frame. So in the prologue, we find out that Job is a blameless and righteous man. We know that he can't be completely sinless because no human is, but he's blameless and a man of integrity. That's what we know. But we also know this about Job, that when his children would have feasts in their homes, sometimes they would invite their sisters to celebrate with them. And when these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children by getting up early in the morning and offering a burnt offering for each of them because he said, oh, maybe my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts, and so just in case, I'm gonna offer a sacrifice for them. He may have been blameless and a man of integrity, but from the very beginning, we find out that Job has a little bit of a skewed vision of the Lord, which is that he might be a little petty, and if I miss out on sacrificing for one thing, I'm in deep trouble, so I'm going to make sure that I've over-sacrificed all the time. Just in case. Then there's the prequel scene where the Satan, or the accuser, is standing in front of the Lord, and the Lord actually says, hey, have you noticed my servant Job, who's a really good guy? See, this doesn't feel like the way that we tend to hear God described in Scripture, and God does not change, so we have to read Job in light of what we know about the Lord. And here's what happens. The accuser says, the only reason he's good is because you've blessed him. You're earning his loyalty, you're buying his faithfulness. And if you would take the blessings away, Job would certainly not be blameless and a man of integrity. The accuser puts God on trial and says, the way that you do things is not right. So let's change that and see what happens. The ancient world functioned with an understanding of what we have called, Old Testament scholars today have described as the retribution principle. Do good, God rewards you. Do evil, God punishes you. That's the whole story. And so here's the conundrum we have in Job. We are told by the narrator and by the Lord himself in heaven, Job is righteous. And then we see Job suffering trial after trial after trial, which means the principle under which we are all functioning, do good, you're blessed, do evil, you're punished, that implodes because Job is good and he's being punished. So the human understanding at that point of how the world works and of how God works and of who God is, is blasted to bits. And the whole book is trying to unpack The retribution principle, this is how God is. This is the wisdom that we have about the Lord. And it's failing us at this point. What do we do with that? Maybe it's a human idea. Maybe it's human wisdom that justice and fairness looks like that. Do good, be rewarded. Do bad, be punished. But justice and wisdom are far more nuanced than that. Uh, Tremper Longman, who used to teach, maybe still teaches Old Testament at Westmont, and John Walton, who teaches at Wheaton, have a beautiful book called How to Read Job. And one of the things it says in there is, there is more 
to the world than justice. They're not saying justice isn't important. Listen again. There is more to the world than justice, and we should be glad of that because if justice were at the core of everything, we, I, would not exist. Because the fair thing, the just thing for the Lord to do to the entire world because of who we are and what we've done would be to eliminate it, to eradicate it, to blow it to bits. And he doesn't. So Job does good, God tells us. Job suffers. His first set of friends come to him and say, well, clearly it's because you must have sinned. I know you're saying you didn't, but you must have because that's how the world works. That's what God does. These friends have never taken a class in pastoral listening, active listening, compassionate presence just being with. So now the retribution principle is broken. And I wonder if you've ever felt in your life like the justice of God is not functioning in your circumstances right now because clearly things aren't going the way they should go. So because of that, Job feels, since he knows he's done good and he's righteous, but he's suffering and being punished, he feels now that he is being the recipient of God's unjust, unfair, chaotic punishment because the retribution principle has imploded. So now God must be being unfair, unjust, and chaotic, just randomly deciding to do things. Job wants answers and probably also solutions and I have asked myself do I ever want answers from God only about a thousand times a day do I want him to explain to me why things are the way they are do I want him to raise up a defense so that I can say well okay I guess it's fine that you did it that way then do I feel that I deserve that from the Lord One thing that's really important to remember when you read Job, and it tells us this in the end of Job, God says, I am angry. He's speaking to one of the three friends, Eliphaz. I am angry with you and your friends, for you have not spoken accurately or truthfully about me. We don't read that till the end, and that means you have to go back and read the whole thing again, keeping in mind that much of what they're saying is not true about God. Maybe there's some truth nuggets in there, but we have to be very careful about what we take from Job as the truth about the Lord. So we need to remember that when we read it. We also need to remember that no one is sitting there recording with our iPhone memo thing, every single word that's being said, that the essence of it is being put into poetic form, which actually makes it very lovely and rich and beautiful to read. It is filled with truth that we can consume and consider and learn from. Job's friends don't listen well. In fact, they don't listen at all. Job is not comforted by anything that his friends say, and so he appeals to God. And God, rather than showing up and giving answers, God raises a defense like no defense any of us will have ever seen on a TV um, law and order show or in any American or worldwide courtroom, God raises a defense that only the Lord can raise. And this is what happens. After all of this bad advice from friends, untrue assessment by his friends, after Job saying, it really would be better if I'd never been born. 
God, why are you treating me unfairly and unjustly? Why are you randomly doing things to me? After all of this, this is how the Lord responds. I'm just going to read you a short portion from Job 38. And then the Lord answered Job from a whirlwind. Job wants to hear from the Lord. Here he comes in a whirlwind. And now God is going to answer him, only he doesn't answer a thing. He just blasts Job one after another with questions. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man. I would say brace yourself like a human being because that is all that we all are. Because I have some questions for you. And you must answer them, since that's what you're demanding of me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know so much, who determined its dimensions? Who stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone? As all the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. There's a picture of creation we don't get from Genesis 1. Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from its womb? So many images in here of birth and new life. And as I, closed, as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, and I limited its shores, and I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. For the ocean and the sea is a sign of chaos in the ancient world, where there's not yet order and safety. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear? Have you ever caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made the daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, as the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal, and it is robed in brilliant colors, and the light disturbs the wicked, and it stops the arm that is raised in violence, have you ever explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know, Job. Where does the light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each one to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course, you know all this. That's neither a question nor an answer, but it's a great word phrase in there. For you were born when it was all created, and you are so very experienced. Have you visited the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail? Which I think dropped on Indianapolis yesterday, did they not? I have reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Where is the path to the source of life, and where is the home of the east wind? That is the first paragraph of the Lord's answers. There are several pages. It's a paradox to me that the thing that finally calms Job is not getting a single answer from the Lord. God blasts him with question after question after question, all of which expose the fact that Job is nothing and knows nothing and the Lord is everything and knows everything. And Job says this, Beginning of 40, then Job replied to the Lord, 
Behold, I am of no account. I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. And Job is at peace in the same circumstances, in the same unrest, in the same trials, because of God's non-answers. And then, I think in a great moment of irony, it's a paradox that God answers Job's questions with questions, and it's a great moment of irony that what Job is complaining about is being treated chaotically by the Lord, that God now says, I'm going to talk about the two most chaotic creatures that I created to teach you a lesson. So he does a little lesson using behemoth, which is the greatest land creature that exists. All kinds of ideas about what it is, but I think behemoth is a great word for it. And then Leviathan, the greatest sea chaos creature that exists. And God says, here is how I'm going to teach you a lesson, Job. And today, this week, I'd encourage you to read Job 40. Uh, I'm sorry. Yes, Job 40, the last part, verses 15 through 24 which is where the Lord says, look at behemoth, Job. And then Job 41, where the Lord says, look at Leviathan, Job. And here's the lesson. Look at behemoth, Job. It was created by me, just like you were. It is God's handiwork, just like you are. I give it food and I, I um, provide for it through nature and creation, just like I do for you. But here's the difference, Job. Behemoth stands in the raging river, and it is not disturbed, and it does not fall over. It's not concerned when the Jordan rages around it, and it doesn't understand why. It cannot be caught off guard. It cannot be trapped. Be like behemoth, Job. Remember that you are my handiwork, and be a human, who can stand in the midst of a raging river and not be consumed or knocked over. And then he moves on to chapter 41, and he says, you know Leviathan, right? Job, the mightiest sea, monster, chaos creature of all. And now the Lord compares himself to Leviathan and says, you can't tame it, can you, Job? You can't contain it. You can't control it. You can't capture it. It is all-powerful, dangerous, immovable, unstoppable. The Lord says, nothing on earth is its equal. No other creature is so fearless. Of all the creatures, Leviathan is the proudest. It is the king of beasts. The point being, I, the Lord, am more than Leviathan, so stop trying to control me, manipulate, minimize me, capture me, and tame me. I am more than you can understand, Job, and yet here I am speaking directly to you, being with you, answering your complaints and your criticisms with my very presence, not blasting you to bits, which is my right and what you deserve. God delivers Job from himself and from his own petty need for simple answers and explanations. He doesn't coddle him, he doesn't coo him, he doesn't baby him with creature comforts. 
He gives his almighty, overwhelming presence and power that clarifies who he is and who Job is, and also who Job isn't, God. God also delivers us from ourselves and from evil, but he also delivers us to new life. Job is full of imagery about birth. The Lord asks Job, do you know where the wild animals give birth? Where each wild goat, where each deer drops its newborn and cares for it? Because apparently the Lord does. The Lord calls himself, essentially, he says, I, the Lord, give birth to the morning dew. I am the mother of the ice. I give birth to the frost. And Job, as we're reading it, with someone as people who now are in the new covenant, Job, I am the one who offers new life, not biological, fleshly life, but spiritual life. I will deliver you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. I will deliver you from your old life to your new life through a new birth. God delivers us from ourselves and evil, and he delivers us to new life. And that is what we learn from Job. He will deliver us. He does deliver us from ourselves. And from the evil one, though sometimes we will feel like we are experiencing evil in a world that is evil, and just maybe more glorious than that, he delivers us to new life in which he is our loving, good, faithful father. And that is comforting, even if nothing around us changes, because we can rest peacefully knowing that God is in control Even if we don't see or understand what that means or how it works or what it looks like, there is nothing so peaceful and calming as being able to say with Job, Behold, I am of no account. And yet the Lord reveals himself to me anyway. And the Lord is with me anyway. I know that you are too wonderful for me to understand, Lord but I trust you, and I trust your wisdom. Read Job this week. Perhaps you will find some comfort in it. I think that's always possible in all of Scripture. But I do know for sure that if we read Job and let God speak and show us who he is, it will prepare us for times of crisis and chaos because we will know better who he is. Will you stand and receive this benediction, which echoes the words of Job, but they come from the writings of the Apostle Paul. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? No one. 
for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory and so all glory to him Yahweh God Father Jesus Christ forever and ever amen <laughs>